Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today I have an interview for you with the incredibly intelligent Jay Dyer. Jay is a philosopher, an author, and a comedian known primarily for his analysis of geopolitics, Hollywood, and culture. If you are interested in following Jay's work or purchasing any of his books, you will find all of the relevant links in the video description. I really hope that you enjoy our conversation together. To start off, could you talk a little bit about what initially drew you to analyzing Hollywood? I guess it's namely celebrities and uh, culture and films. Also, do you believe that Hollywood is as important a vehicle for propagandizing people as the media? What began me on this track was when I was uh, in high school, I was, we, we had clicks in high school. I had to ask everybody on Twitter the other day if, if this still exists. And I get the impression that clicks don't exist as much anymore. But when I went to high school, it was very much like a John Hughes movie. So there was all these clicks. And I was in the, you know, the cool guy click of, you know, we would party and have fun and, uh, and we, we did theater and yes, we were heterosexual. Okay. So, <laughs> but I, I was in a small town and in a small town, there's not a whole lot of options. So we were all in the movie movies. We were into the arts. <clears throat> a lot of my friends were in bands and, and, and all of us were movie buffs. And so we were always interested in that as an art form. And then when I went to uh, college, I decided I wanted to study philosophy and film and somehow try to make all these things kind of mesh together just because I had a lot of interests and uh, took a lot of film classes, took a lot of history of film classes, history of Hollywood, and it did a history degree at the same time too, as well as philosophy degree. So it was kind of like all these worlds were meshing and that was around mid 2000s. And that was right when blogging was starting to kind of get get going. So I just started writing blogging about movies and doing a, my own weird movie analysis, which is kind of like if you had a college class on, uh, you know, literature, that it'd be like a close reading, but I would sprinkle in, you know, these kind of weird esoteric uh, critiques and, you know, how a lot of these people tied into intelligence agencies and how a lot of the, um, you know, military and Pentagon offices had liaison, uh, you know, connections between different studios and, and Hollywood. And then when I was doing grad work, I was like, you know, this is also fascinating. There's so much on this topic that nobody knows about. And I was finding so much information on this. I was like, I've got to, in some way, you know, use this as something to, you know, like a book or you know, documentary or something like that. Uh, so the easiest thing to do was just kind of collect together all the essays. And then uh, Whitney Webb's publisher, which is, he's, she's, he's also the publisher of like uh, Daniel Esselin's book on uh, Bilderberg. So those are the famous books from that publisher that reached out and they were like, hey, do you have a book? And I didn't. But I was like, yeah, sure. I got a manuscript ready to go. So I just kind of put all my best essays together. And um, the weird part was that when I got into the grad school era of studying this, uh, 
there was so much more that I, I didn't know about that, again, just kind of like tumbled down this rabbit hole, so to speak. And I found, um, you know, a lot of Pentagon money, a lot of FOIA requests, a lot of that kind of stuff that had gone into influencing uh, movies and TV shows to the nth degree. I mean, things that you wouldn't expect, you know, all the way down to things like Cupcake Wars, these really stupid TV shows. But when you start to understand, yeah, when you start to understand like what the idea of culture creation and culture engineering is, then it starts to make a lot more sense why you would want to have, you know, messaging and propaganda in, in even those kinds of shows. And then it got even into areas of like cartoons and the Pentagon consulting on various cartoons in the eighties. I grew up watching GI Joe. So, you know, uh, I was like, what? So even that was like a psyop. So yeah, that's what, that's what, uh, that's what I got into. And it was all very weird and crazy, but uh, you know, the weird part too, is that I was studying that in the mid two thousands and now it seems a lot more amenable to people. Like, you know, after Argo, when Ben Affleck made that, he did these interviews where he was like, yeah, Hollywood and the CIA, they're like flip sides of the same coin. And it was just very nonchalant. I'm like, well, here he is saying it. Right. And I've been researching this and people call me crazy for so long for talking about this. It was like, Oh, you're crazy dude. Tenfold. <laughs> And I'm well, like, don't he and Matt Damon uh, have like provable ties to the CIA? Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah. once that stuff started coming out, it seemed like it was a lot more, again, like people accepted it more easily. But, but I mean, the thing with Argo was that it was made with the CIA, right? Like it was a, one of these movies where they publicly spoke of it as a CIA consultant movie, just like mm. Zero Dark Thirty, American Sniper. So I guess I'm just saying it. It just started becoming more acceptable or normalized once those people started talking about it but you know i'm just emphasizing that in like in the 2000s this stuff was so crazy like it was just like yeah that's crazy there's no way but i mean i've got academic text up there on the top shelf which is you know going back to the 90s and 2000s where you know there was academics already writing about this back then that you know movies were basically made as propaganda and the reality is that i'll, I'll stop rambling after this that was always the case when you go back to the, you know, the teens, the 19 teens of the silent pictures and you get into the 20s and 30s. I mean, even in other countries. Right. I mean, the, the German film, they use it for propaganda. I mean, it's just kind of natural that, oh, well, yeah, it's going to be used for propaganda. And that's where you get these sort of back backdoor influences. And then in the, in the second book, I, t I went beyond like CA and Pentagon and all that stuff. And I got into like organized crime and its relationship to Hollywood because there's always been a deep relationship between intelligence agencies and organized crime as well so that's how i got into it and that's kind of what taught, took me down this this path that and studying ian fleming and the history of the bond series and how james bond was another one of these key elements in this tie between intelligence and, and movies because it was a very important cold war archetype figure that they wanted to prop up and put him up as kind of the image of, of western masculinity at, at that time which is ironic because now the very the people opposite. like now it's uh, that now so I, got, I got this book the other day. Check this out. It's called uh, is it this one. Yeah, so stars and spies, right? This is about mm -hmm. this is a mainline oh, dude, a mainline historian, right? Writing about mm -hmm. the history of spot, and it's like okay, so now that the mainline dude writes about it, it's cool, right? It's kosher. You can talk about this, but when I put my book out in 2016, it was like oh, it's crazy conspiracy theory. Oh, but he's a mainline historian, so it counts. But at the end of his books, he's got another book too, where he's writing about the history of British intelligence. At the end of the books, it's like, 
oh yeah, during the Cold War, James Bond was the you know archetype of masculinity and you know suave, you know debonair, blah blah blah. And it's like now he's uh, he's not allowed at the <laughs> British intelligence because they're woke. But he's championing right. it. He's championing it. He's like, no, no, it's time for James to get out of here with his uh, toxic masculinity. That was actually going to be my next question. It's obvious that there's a lot of collaboration between the intelligence agencies and the media. And then obviously there's collaboration between them and uh, Hollywood. But how deep does this go? Do they even create films anymore for entertainment purposes? Or is it only a vehicle for some kind of propaganda to get some sort of message across? I think the way it works is that... Uh, there's a lot of films that are made that that aren't propaganda and, and don't have any specific messaging per se. Um, but usually what they would do is focus on the big blockbusters because those are the ones that are most important because most people would see that. You know, if you think about uh, a, a franchise series like Bond or even something like Harry Potter, I mean, those are going to be seen by a billion, maybe more than a billion people. So the, the propaganda and the messaging in those is very important, <clears throat> especially to the power structure so that they'll focus a lot more on that, but um, they will also focus on um, things that they consider to be culture drivers. And that's why you could get things like even food shows might have that kind of uh, influence and because we, we, we might not think about it that way, but food is part of culture, you know, just like fashion is part of culture. And so if you have an attitude of full spectrum dominance, which we see this now with, you know, great reset, for example, that's every area of life. You can't have, um, you know, a, a full spectrum dominance model put into place and allow everybody to like create their own fashions or whatever. And that's why, for example, in the, the circular economy, they spe specify that you're going to have to share your whitey tidies with everybody else in the neighborhood. <laughs> like you, you don't get to, you know, sew your own boxers and whitey tidies or whatever you like. You got to you got to share everything because you can't allow that level of independence. I mean, it's, it, I know that sounds crazy, but that's, that's the socialist model, of the economy that they want to bring in. Um, but yeah, uh, to go back to your question about the, <clears throat> about the media, I think Hollywood's always been kind of an extension of the media. They've always had an overlap. All the, the heads of the first TV networks, they were all from <clears throat> wartime intelligence. So okay, well. like Sarnoff, Paley, uh, and then people from consulting agencies that also worked in the OSS, people like Walter Lippmann, um, lawyers, they were always kind of overlapping with Hollywood and media. And so they took a lot of that wartime knowledge that they had of psyops from the OSS, and they put that into how to run and do mass media. So it's always been that way, um, I think in, in varying degrees, but it's really the blockbusters that are that are most important because the <clears throat> because of how many people see those and what kind of archetypes they project in those but nowadays it's like it's it's different i don't think the studios matter that much anymore it's it's gone to you know streaming stuff revenue for these big blockbusters is way down unless it's something like avatar so it's really shifted and changed uh, but that's just because of the internet and now the movies like, uh, you know, we, Jamie and I were watching some horror movies. Like now the horror movies are woke. It's just really ridiculous. Really? Mm. Yeah. It's, it's almost, almost, almost everything is unwatchable. Almost. <laughs> I agree. I haven't been able to watch a new movie and I can't even remember what the last good new movie I saw was. 
it's just yeah unwatchable. Things used to be subtle. There are sometimes I'll watch movies now yeah. that I watched in early 2000s or something. And I'll think, oh, I missed that. I never noticed oh. this before. This is a little bit of propaganda, but now it's just in your face, shoving it down your throat, and I can't, I can't even watch it anymore. And that's the that's the more subtle, like you said, that more subtle form of, of culture and uh, cu- cultural engineering, uh, which is kind of I think obvious to us now when we look and say, oh, you know, everybody is Skittles in the movies. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> It's like, oh, is that really how it is? Is everybody, you know, Skittles? I don't know about that, right? Um, but yeah, like you're saying, like when you, the further you go back, it's a lot more subtle. And it was also like the further you go back, there was a lot more truthful films that were made that did have real messages and real content and, and real warnings. You know, in the 70s, they made a lot of movies about the coming dystopia. Um, in you know the 90s there was a lot of movies that that kind of exposed i guess you could say kind of deep state type things in a very very basic way but the more that we get up into the you know past the 2000s especially after the big nine event like everything really changes and turns into more and more just straight up propaganda and the weird thing about that is that even after the big nine event when you had these movies that were really pro-america like you know american sniper or argo or like that like ben affleck's a great image of this because he's that post nine well you remember pearl harbor that came out right before the big nine event and then you know ben affleck's kind of this image of the 2000s era face of hollywood dude now that's all bad right now he would be toxic masculinity it's racist because it's Americana. And I'm saying it's, I'm not saying that was good because that was all propaganda at that time too. Right. But now it's like, you can't have pro American stuff because that's propaganda. That's racist. That's, you see what I'm saying? How crazy it is yeah. that even like in the, in, from, from the is 2000s that why, now. Is that why we're seeing so many remakes of films? Because they're just remaking and remaking. Do they have to remake it according to the propaganda of the time? To like yeah, rewrite they're, they're, it. There's two things going on with that. One is that they don't want to put any risks in anything. So they think they could just, you know, make money, just that money level of, of the safety of a remake. But there's also, like you said, there is this weird Maoist kind of element of rewriting the past. Uh, And I think we're going to see that that's going to go even crazier because (laughs) we were watching forties movies and man, I mean, there's some like pretty wild you know red pilled and base stuff in the 40s movies that when people figure out that that was in the that they just don't know but th- they're gonna ban that stuff that's what i'm trying to say like you won't be able to watch these kinds of movies they're all gonna be banned um because there's a lot of uh how shall we say uh jokes about people's types <laughs> I'm, trying, right. I'm trying to speak around that well if it's all digital then they can just edit things out or even delete them completely. But if you have hard copies of things, then yeah, yeah. that might be illegal contraband at some point though. Uh, Do you believe in the theory of predictive programming? And if so, could you talk a little bit about it? Maybe I'm sure there's some people that don't know what that is. So maybe you could explain it. Yeah. I don't know exactly who came up with that term, uh, but I think the the basic idea is correct. Um, I talk about it quite a bit in my books. Uh, The idea is just basically that one form of propaganda can be, to seed the ideas of what you're going to be doing ahead of time and that fiction can be a lot more effective for that than mainstream news or something like that because the news is kind of churned out and then people forget it a week later so the news isn't is is 
minimal has minimal effect in that regard but movies are a lot, a lot more powerful for that because they're the kind of the, the myths of our of our culture of our civilization so movies have the about the ability to uh affect people at a very subconscious level that's actually been studied too by the way this is not my just theorizing but uh <clears throat> the, the the people who study propaganda and psyops they study film and literature for these purposes, for these reasons, to figure out the best way to tailor the uh, message to affect the target audience. And that could be in a positive way, it could be in a negative way. And so you can, uh, one, one, one idea is the, it's called the theater of brutality, where you brutalize an audience, desensitize them through um, the worst forms of film, right? So hardcore, this, that, murder, death, all that kind of stuff. That can be a form of desensitizing and, and putting the audience and putting your target people in under a form of psyops to degrade and destroy them. And this is part of warfare, right? Uh, this is not, this goes beyond the arts, but it's weaponizing the arts. That's very, it's a very real thing. But there's also this notion of <clears throat> um, preparing an audience or preparing the target group for what you want to do ahead of time. And you can actually see this in psychology. You know, there was a few years ago when all over YouTube, it was all like videos about narcissists and, uh, you know, gaslighting. Do you remember that when like there was just hundreds and, and there was thousands of videos on YouTube about <laughs> and like everybody like was, before Donald Trump came? Uh, it was about 2018, like suddenly okay, there was 2018. Like, okay. and everybody was their own little pop psychologist on YouTube and talking about their my boyfriend is a narcissist. And then all the vegans are like, narcissists, carnists. <laughs> Carnists are narcissists. You're gaslighting me. No, no, which it's just funny to me because, like, they were saying that if you disagreed or if you debated, that that that's not what narcissism is. Like, disagreeing with you is not is not gaslighting. But Gaslight is a great movie to watch to see this principle from the 1940s with uh, Ingrid Bergman. In that movie, the guy who's messing with his wife to get her money, he's gaslighting her by doing all these tricks. And like kind of revealing that he's doing it in her face and it throws her off balance it's a it's a form of psychological manipulation that it's a, that is a real thing and so i'm just making that analogy to the, the the reason that you might seed or put this stuff into fiction might be to gaslight the target audience to put it in their face that you're doing it and then they mm -hmm. they typically will fold they'll back down right uh that's what happens in the film for example <clears throat> until she gets pushed to the point of madness but the other thing that uh, predictive programming can do is kind of give the impression that the establishment is godlike that, oh, well, they, they, how they know ahead of time they were going to do this? Well, because they planned it, right? It's, it's that simple. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not magic. It's, yeah, it's just a military strategy and planning. So once we understand it, I think the easiest way to understand this kind of stuff is from the military vantage point, because that's where it's most uh, utilized is techniques and tactics of weakening and uh, breaking down an enemy or a target population, you know, Sun Tzu type stuff, right? Uh, so, but there are actual academic people that have written on this theory of predictive programming, like there's a professor named Elliot Gaines, who has an essay about <clears throat> semiotic symbolic destructions of landmarks in films before the big nine event, um, and how that might have contributed to how we perceived the bringing down of those towers, right? So you want to have the narrative in place ready to roll when that occurs to then steer the audience into how they interpret that event. So it's a big part of narrative control. I think it's a, it's a big part of conditioning people to it. Better example than that would be probably 
um, you know, H.G. Wells is the Bernays before Bernays. And when H.G. Wells wrote all his science fiction novels, he was perceptive enough to know that if he wanted to convince people of his uh, Fabian socialism and his Freemasonic views of, of the atheistic Star Trek future that he wanted to bring about, the best way to do it would be not through his non-fiction uh, political writings, but through all that sci-fi. So the most important sci-fi novels that we know in you know the West in the 20th century, I mean, they're from the dude who wanted to bring in. The state owns the, your kids. <laughs> the state decides if you have kids, you know, total egalitarianism, total, you know, one world order. I mean, all of that fiction, whether it's Island of Dr. Moreau or whether it's War of the Worlds, I mean, all that stuff from him, Time Machine, it's all geared towards this. And he perceptively understood that if you put this into the fiction, you could see the ideas and control the, the zeitgeist of the culture, you know, maybe even 100 years down the road. So uh, and, he, and he's not just a fiction writer. He was a you know, high level geopolitical strategist involved in the Royal Society, the Fabian Society, all these different groups. And he's the one that designed the propaganda for World War One against, uh, you know, the non-Western powers. So, again, he's Bernays before Bernays. So th these are all very real things, mm -hmm. even though we just don't think about them or know about them as, uh, you know, strategies of warfare. Am I mistaken? Is the, isn't the grandson of Bernays like the owner of Netflix? Yep. Yeah. Really kind of crazy. Kind of, kind of makes you think. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask what your opinion is on why you think there's so much satanic and demonic symbolism in film, um, not just film, the fashion industry, it's everywhere. Do you think people think it's just edgy or are there a lot of people who are genuine Satanists working in these industries? All the above. So uh, we went back and we, we've been looking at some of the early <clears throat> 19 teens German expressionist film uh, because that's the first era when you had overt satanism in film now it's not i'm not saying it's satanic because it's german i'm saying that they were the first in their experimental circles and there's a bunch of socialists right so there's a bunch of people in, in, that were they were socialists uh probably had bolshevik leanings in german film and they just happened to be you know in the circles of very radical kind of uh sexual liberation types of groups that existed at that time the same thing was going on in England too. They weren't, they weren't necessarily into film, but there were people that were pushing. I, I couldn't believe this until I, I read it recently. So people in the Fabian circles, they were pushing uh, the most degenerate stuff you could think of in the arts in the 1890s. So they were like way ahead of the 1960s cultural revolution. They were doing this stuff in the 1890s um, and the Marxists were doing this. The socialists were doing this in Germany in the 1910s. And the, they, they were experimenting with all, with all the satanic imagery. Uh, best example is Metropolis, uh, but also a lot of surrealist imagery, a lot of um, what I guess we could say is loosely occult. Uh, and then that had an influence on a lot of people in Hollywood. But the weird part about Hollywood was that at that time, Hollywood was very much not avant-garde. It was kind of all about just making pictures around the stars that were in them. So you would have these big 30s and 40s movies that were, you know, up, centered around Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart or, you know, whatever starlet was hot at that time, they weren't really interested in any, anything avant-garde. But by the time we get up into the fifties uh, and sixties, Hollywood starts getting more and more weird, more and more avant-garde. Uh, I don't exactly know what the full reason for that is, but 
probably by the time of the cultural revolution of the 60s which was a top-down thing it wasn't a purely organic uh cultural revolution that was part of social engineering i've done a lot of uh talks and analysis on that but that's kind of what opened the door i think for more and more what was seen as edgy stuff but at a certain point you know in terms of evil it only you can only go so far to be edgy to where it's just like the next thing is the the next most disgusting thing right so mm -hmm. it, it just kind of bottoms out at like just nothing but pure just gross so um i think that's where we're at now is like there's no there's nothing more ed there's no edgy to do except for like i don't know people are going to marry their farm animals or something like there's no other way to go and that that'll probably i'm sure that'll probably be like the next oh it's uh, the moving drama of the farm girl who fell in love with her cow you know something ridiculous like this and it'll be like it'll be like the, the draw it'll be you know the love story of the year right well they already kind of did this with that stupid uh What's that movie? That one that Slice? I didn't watch. It. Isn't there like this? I never saw it either, but it was really just. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not the name. It was some what? alien movie they created and oh, Splice. Oh, that, yeah, Splice. That's right. That, yeah, that's one. But I don't know if if that like he fell in love or whatever. But I know. I think she did. I think you're right. Okay. Well. Was, and then there was that one with the, that fish one. The uh, oh oh oh. The one where the woman marries the fish. fish Is it man. Shape of Water? <laughs> I never, I never that's it. That's it. yeah that's not really my cup of tea so but, we're already getting into that domain right. of like oh yeah so edgy yeah oh marry a fish yeah. so hot right my. now <laughs> marrying fish is so hot right now um that'll that so that's but that's all totally like 100 i think people don't realize that they think it's oh it's just degenerate people trying to make money no it's warfare i mean mm -hmm. this is like really serious hardcore warfare and People have known for a long time. They were experimenting with this in the Iraq war and probably way before that beaming like hardcore prawn uh, into Iraq to change the culture. So, I mean, this is like, it's, it's, it's all part of warfare is what I'm trying to say. That's one layer of it though. It's not like everybody involved in making the movies is part of some, you know, secret society. Although some are, there are some directors that are outright Satanists, outright occultists, uh, people into Kabbalah people into anything you could think of. So that also exists and that is i think not everybody but some directors see their art as you know this kind of ritual magic crowley type of thing where they're putting a they're putting their magic spell and intention out into the world to you know to to do their magic so that does exist too at a certain level with with certain directors i think that are that are explicitly into occultism yeah do you think that hollywood and celebrities in general are losing some of their influence I personally think social media has been responsible for dimming a lot of their glow and taking away the mystery around them. But I'm curious what your opinion is, like in relation to how, how influential they were in the 90s, early 2000s. Oh, yeah, totally. Like it was, it was a completely top-down system back at that time. And uh, I mean, I'm not saying the new system is way better uh, it's just different because it's we all know the problems with social media right i mean it's like a whole new set of problems with a new set of overlords and masters um so i'm gonna i was gonna do my mark zuckerberg impression but i'll, I'll refrain um but don't worry i'm gonna i was gonna ask you to do an impression at the end so we'll see there's okay. a certain a one mark or I'm so glad no. you invited me. So it's going to be great when you're in the metaverse because you'll have vitamins pumped directly into your blood veins. You won't have to do anything. It's going to be great. You'll live in a coom pod and I will be so happy for you. Um, 
Perfect. That was my Zuckerberg. I'm sorry, I forgot the question. Um, I was talking about the celebrities losing their influence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, I didn't even realize this because I, I didn't. You might you might think that what I do like I not you but people in general you might think oh you you follow celebrities and no I, I actually don't like I don't know what the celebrities are up to unless some kind of important story comes my way because a lot of what I did for this stuff was just research the films and read the books about different studios and the history of people and whatever I, I don't really follow a lot of like you know celebrity news but every now and then if something pops up I'll, I'll pay attention to it when it relates to you know ben affleck doing an interview saying that hollywood and the cia are basically the same thing and uh celebrities are losing their influence because they didn't realize that when social media came on the scene it was all about authenticity and so people appreciated it and, they, and they liked authenticity and we have a friend who i won't say his name or anything but we have a friend who does um things for some of the biggest a-listers right and they back around 2012 they were realizing that like hey what's the social media thing like people are getting popular and they were telling people like him hey do our production stuff and make us famous on social media and it's like we can't just make you famous on social media because it's not a matter of just a high produced thing that automatically makes you famous. It's people are enjoying the authenticity of real people now rather than the fakeness. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm, I don't follow TikTok, but my wife watches it and keeps up with it because she said that the younger that you go, the, it's this trend now on TikTok to where they don't like celebrities at all. So like 18, 19, 20 year olds are like getting in this idea of being anti-celebrity. So that's, that's definitely a trend and, and, and they definitely wanted to try to hop on that bandwagon. Um, but I see that going away. We did, we did an interview with uh, Jamie Kennedy from Scream uh, and a lot of other shows uh, the other day. And this is what he was saying. He's like, dude, I'm in Hollywood. And like, it's crazy. It's all done, man. Like this, it's all just do your thing, man. You be your own boss. Right. So he was basically saying and making this point as somebody still working in the Hollywood system. So absolutely. But this, and, and there's pros to that. That's a good thing. But then there's these, you know, the, the downsides are now like, you know, Zuckerberg's our master or whatever. So I guess that's true. But I mean, when you don't have a script anymore, if you're acting in a film, you just have a script to follow to make yourself likable, whatever that character might be. But if you have to actually be yourself online, then maybe you're not so likable and people put it together you're that, right. oh, you're actually, <laughs> exactly. you're nothing like the, the amazing characters that you play in films. I'm curious, what are some of the most important books you recommend for people to understand, to best understand the mentality of the elites and the specific direction they want to take society in? Yeah, it reminds me before we go to that, that Jamie was talking about this clip that I think she said Jennifer Lopez put up about her and Ben Affleck. And it was was supposed to be some authentic clip of them hanging out and having fun, but it was like really fake and rehearsed. and, And anyway, that just made me think of that, like, Take like they, don't, they don't understand that that's like oh you're you can be an authentic person and, and attract an audience now on the internet and they're like oh okay how do i get into the role of being an authentic person <laughs> what's well, not a role right yeah they're uh, all popping up on tiktok but in a manner that it seems as if their management is like you got to get on tiktok you know, yeah now to, to and act like a real person up. right and then <laughs> like, you're a real person right um so best let's see uh is this like best books for uh, overall understanding the big plan is that what you, what you asked? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. So one thing that I do uh, is lecture through a lot of these top texts, and so we've gone through the writings of the elite for the last hundred, hundred and twenty years. We've gone through about 
50 or 60 of them over the last six years. So, you know, we do a lot of things. We do movie breakdowns. We do debates. We do <clears throat> comedy shows now live, which we're doing. By the way, plug for Austin, Texas, February 11th. If anybody wants to come out to our live event, we'll be having a <clears throat> comedy show with uh, BG Combi and five hours of lectures. So it's like comedy and a bunch of information. Uh, if you want to get tickets to that, you can go to my Twitter. The best books are probably overall the number one book would be Tragedy and Hope by Dr. Carol Quigley, but that is a massive, almost unreadable beast of a book. So I don't recommend trying to read that. There's a smaller book that he wrote that's the same information. It's called Anglo-American Establishment. And that's really about the totality of the Western power block, how they uh, gamed the 20th century, that they were who was behind the two world wars and so forth, the you know superstructure of the industrialists and the banking power um, that they kind of engineered the two world wars and the Cold War to bring about a technocracy, and so that they had had this planned the whole time. And he's he's important because he was the uh, mentor to Bill Clinton. He was a big establishment person, archivist, historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. And his books are not conspiracy texts, they're exposés. So what I usually focus on is books that um, are written just from people in the establishment saying what they're up to, like what they're doing and what they believe. Another classic would be the very recent um, Klaus Schwab text. I mean, Klaus lays everything out in this book. I mean, it's 100% like full on, we'll have the Skynet, we will change your DNA, I will penetrate your cabinets, we will have a world government, so there will be the nanotech, all of that in this book. So those are two easy ones that really kind of lay out the overall plan. And you can see it's the same plan from when Quigley was writing in the 1960s up till now. Um, but you could also go back and see the same, let's see, where's my, you know, like classics like, H.G. Wells, he wrote <clears throat> Open Conspiracy and New World Order. I mean, it's kind of okay. I kind of, <laughs> that kind I've of lays it out books. very easily, right? So those are some easy, some uh, some readable options that really lay out the whole plan. Um, there's a lot more. I mean, uh, so you are convinced then that that there is this long-standing master plan of sorts that uh, even just broadly speaking, that the elites have been working together for a very long time to kind of bring to fruition their vision of how the world should be. Well, I think we could, go, if we go back to like the Middle Ages and the Renaissance era, and maybe a little bit after that, there were other powers, right? But the power structure that we are under now, which you could call the Atlantis's power block, is the remnants of the British Empire that sort of re- organized as the American Anglo-American establishment empire that also includes other countries that can't name on YouTube, but you, you know what I mean, right? So this is the, mm -hmm. the Atlantis's power block, which is not the nation states themselves, but it's this inner core of group uh, of people that are not hidden. They're open. So I would say in that regard, it's like the British empire, but it's the British empire resurrected and re revamped as the anglo-american establishment which quigley details as the most powerful families in europe and in particularly england the royal society who gathered around the rhodes milner roundtable group to set up steering committees which are above government but they give policy to the government and the elected officials and that's they align themselves with the wealthiest most powerful families in the u.s uh at the turn of the century last century and that is what is the Anglo-American establishment. So that's where we get 
Council on Foreign Relations. That's where we get the um, Trilateral Commission, which Brzezinski headed up. And that's where we get, they also created the OSS CIA. That's, that's who created the United Nations. That's who created the EU. Uh, so yeah, so that's who runs the show right now. Uh, and especially in the West for sure. And they've been, they've been at this at least since the turn of the century. Yeah. Obviously we have our own opinions of, of people like Klaus Schwab and, and Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates. I mean, a lot of us perceive them as a bit villainous, but how do you think they see themselves? Do you think they see themselves as morally good and that they're doing what's best for society? I think these guys have, they aren't, they know what they're up to because they see themselves. At, I mean, they're sort of the front faces of this inner group here that runs things. And, uh, which doesn't not say they don't have power. They do have power, but they have power because they're, uh, part of this superstructure that we're talking about. I think they're in their minds, it's all sort of just rationalized and justified on the basis of pragmatic power politics that, well, this is just what we have to do because this is the best for everybody. So, you know, if you read when Quigley writes his gigantic, you know, 1300 page tragedy and hope when he's defending why this is all good, he's like, oh, well, the ends justify the means because we're going to bring in a global order, which in the future, you know, when we have the star trek future it'll be the best for everybody right so when we get star trek federation won't that be happy everybody be happy then right so i think they have they do have these kind of justifications that run in their head uh, like a hamster wheel but i also think that they also don't care because they don't i mean about any kind of moral duties or anything like that because they don't believe that any of those things exist there's no morals morals are just determined by power structures so there's probably a nietzschean element involved in this um, but there's also, I think for certain people, the higher you get up on the, the food chain of the globalists, there is a self, uh, they're self-aware, not all of them, but some of them. So I think when you get up to that level, especially people like a Kissinger, Brzezinski, David Rockefeller, these kinds of people, like they full on 100% know what they're taught, what they're up to. And they write about it in the books. And I think some of those people are self-consciously actually evil. Okay. Like they're aligned with it. A lot of people refer to this whole battle we're fighting as a political war or a culture war. Do you believe this is the case? Or do you see it more as a spiritual war? And do you think that the situation, this hideous situation we're in with society is even solvable via politics or is it only solvable through God and people returning to faith so it manifests on the political sphere on the geopolitical sphere and it manifests in the culture war but you're correct i think that it's more than that it's it is ultimately and to me that's the best explanation for why you we don't see this just manifesting in the 20th century or in the waning era of the british empire um this goes back to you know empires in history have always kind of functioned in this very brutal way i'm not saying that hierarchy is bad you know i believe in hierarchy in terms of government but you know the orthodox position is that the the christianity christianized the empire and turned it into something at least intending to be a humane civilizing force and that's what you see in something like byzantium for example and what we have in post enlightenment modernity post-revolutionary era modernity is the idea that everything is inverted there's no such thing as hierarchy there's no such thing as god it's now a uh, will to power sort of uh you know leviathan Allah Hobbes type of situation that the super state the corporate state can create value create meaning create a utopia or whatever that 
now is aligned with Malthusianism, which is the idea that most people need to die for the for the good of this system. So mm -hmm. that to me is like full on 100% like Luciferian satanic system. <laughs> so I think that ultimately it's it's a spiritual thing. But I don't think that everybody involved in that in that system even has to know that or think that right. I mean, you, you can be a, a rabid atheist who thinks that, you know, you need to depopulate the, the earth to save mother mother earth or whatever or a new ager and you can be influenced by the satanic without even knowing it. So uh, I definitely think it's a spiritual thing that goes beyond politics. It doesn't mean politics is totally worthless. I think maybe at a local level, people can have an effect, but like Quigley says when he was writing the 1960s that there had not been a full on honest presidential election in a hundred years. Mm -hmm. So the money power, and then industrial power had basically controlled the presidential elections from the 1860s up to the 1960s. So I, yeah. I, I don't think that politics, you know, really does a whole lot. Uh, it's a lot of noise. And, and the thing about politics is so annoying is that it always looks past like the real problems and what's really going on. You know, while people, yeah, that's fight, true. Over, people fight over Donald Trump for four, six, eight years. And the technic, the technocratic agenda just marches on, oblivious to whatever's going on on the echo chamber of you know political stuff well i i definitely think yeah politics is very influential but now it's just not so influential for us because the system's been completely corrupted and they own it right. all so they can sure use it for their ends but not us even if we get somebody we elected that we actually support and like they never end up being able to do anything good as my last question i'm curious um where you think we'll be in the next few years do you think as some people speculate we're gonna see world war three or we're already in world war three or perhaps another pandemic or are you optimistic or pessimistic for the future both <laughs> yeah um, same optimistic um <laughs> So I think that, you know, I don't, I don't know what they'll do, but I know that there's certain things that they, they tend to run scenarios they tend to run. So they are running new exercises for a new contagion. Uh, Gil Bates just ran one called uh, catastrophic contagion. So, and we know before the big, you know, recent events, there was event to for something one, specific so, like smallpox or just i don't remember if it was a version of monkeypox i don't know what they called it in catastrophic contagion but uh yeah i mean what that will be whether they even go with that model i don't know uh it looks like what they're going to try to do is push the uh climate thing very hard that oh look you know because we shut down it healed the environment. So we need regular climate lockdowns. This is what they're trying to push. And then that will be tied into austerity, you know, tiny living uh, that will be tied into your carbon footprint. Like the last Davos meeting, that's, that's all they were talking about was mm -hmm. controlling and tracking, tracing everybody's carbon rationing. And that means your food, that means your livelihood, everything track and trace. So what they're going to try to utilize whatever works to bring that in. So it could be, you know, economic cr crash. It could be, you know, they, they ran the cyber polygon exercises, which Klaus was making a big deal about the last few years, which was a, you know, global cyber collapse or whatever, you know. So in those exercises, it's internet mass scale going down, being hacked, blah, 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 that then leads to uh, a new revamped system, right? So that could be one route. Um, they could go with war as well. Uh, because 
Uh, but I, I did an interview interview with uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who's a pretty high up there guy on the food chain when it comes to uh, this kind of analysis. And and he, well, this is this is maybe a month or two ago, so mm-hmm. maybe it's dated now. But he didn't think that there would be a, a World War Three. Um, oh, so really? yeah, he didn't think so. But I did I did an analysis with another guy who's a Marine, former Marine, Southeast Asia analyst, and he thinks they will try to have a World War Three. I don't know, but. So it could be any of those scenarios, but we do know that the goal is by 2030 to have a lot of this global architecture for the control system, the Skynet stuff in place. By 2040, they want to have the population severely reduced of the world. Uh, And then by 2050, uh, in a lot of the texts, they say they want the full-on total Skynet supercomputer zeitgeist city world government in place. Do you see it happening? Do you see them succeeding? They were going to definitely push hard to get this in place, but uh, a lot of people are are waking up to it. And even if they have a lot of power and a lot of influence, like it's very hard to force these things into place if people are opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just really hard to say because it's really going to depend on in the next few years what happens, like how many people continue to wake up or whether people submit, cave in, go along. I mean, look at what they did in Australia. It's just insane, like the the levels of clamp down and shutting down and beating up people and ruining lives and, you know, arresting It was pretty people. hideous here in Austria, too. We, we were the oh, only really? country, we were the first to have the mandatory vaccines. I mean, I didn't take it. We pushed back against it till they eventually got rid of that because they lost awesome. too much support. Right. But uh, it was hideous. I went through three lockdowns. One was almost like eight months. So I feel wow. like this whole space of my life was just stolen like a few years so yeah it was not not nice but i think in australia it was much worse yeah it sounds like you got like yeah pretty much almost the same level <laughs> like a, as bad as them um yeah and having to wear the masks everywhere yeah and and also banned from everywhere if you were unvaccinated except supermarkets and like churches and obviously health related places but yeah it was it was really awful you couldn't go what, anywhere what, doing anything. did you get like an, like if you if you walked outside without a mask would they try to like intimidate you or would they like full-on arrest you or beat you down or in, what would they do you they would make you put on a mask if you went i think you could be outside in spaces away from large crowds without a mask but if you went in any sort of building or on the metro or whatever you had to wear a mask they would ask you to yeah that was all conditioning for compliance like seeing how many people would comply what could they get away with mm-hmm. for whatever they run next right that will all that that was all relevant data r&d for the, the next thing so uh what that next thing will be i don't know but i am optimistic because number one well i, I think that you know history has meaning i think that the history has an end i'm not saying we're in the end times i don't know that but um <clears throat> we i think that you know we come out victorious but i <clears throat> i don't think that it's going to come easy in terms of what they're going to push in the next several years. So they're really going to try to push the CBDC that will control everybody's economic transactions if they get that through. Mm-hmm. But I also think that these systems, uh, they're, they're not as fluid as they think. A lot of these, a lot of these things are going to f- collapse, uh, uh, especially given the fact that uh, this system that they're trying to push in is so unnatural that, you know, it may result in a lot of death and damage, but it won't work because it's so just, ridiculous and it's like a bunch of mad scientists cooking up this like ideal thing and it's kind of like the french revolutionaries when they try to force the whole society into it Mm -hmm. it's so absurd that it just collapses it does result in a lot of death and destruction but it doesn't actually work and Mm -hmm. i think it's going to be the same with this type of thing that this doesn't actually work but it might lead to a lot of chaos on the way yeah 
I can't see that being able to sustain itself long term. Exactly. It's too against human nature. Right. So we'll see. On that optimistic note, I'm going to end this interview, but I really, really appreciate you joining me. Uh, before you go, could you please close this interview and uh, talk about where people can find you, but in the voice of Klaus Schwab. That's what I was going to ask you to do. It's my favorite impression of yours. I know you already did it, but one more time would, would be great. Well, whatever you do, do not go to the website of the JS analysis. Also, he will penetrate the cabinets if you do. However, if you do decide to go to this evil person's, this dissident's website, you will also find him on the YouTube. Andrew will find him on, uh, where else am I? I'm trying to, <laughs> I was getting lost in my clouds. Uh, yeah, you find me on YouTube under my name. You can find me at my website. Uh, and my books are there. Don't get them from Jeff Bezos. Get them from my website. If you want the signed copies of esoteric hollywood one and two and yeah so i host the fourth hour of lord voldemort on fridays and what else do we do uh yeah that's a you can find me on twitter and, and go to the live event if people want to go see me and jamie and uh bg cumby the philosopher of comedy live in austin uh, february 11th and then i gotta give a shout out to my sponsor chalk.com the best uh, supplements on the internet get those uh through the promo codes at my website and uh, Richard Grove at Tragic Hope, Grand Theft World. Shout out to my other sponsors. So that's all I can think of. Thank you, Brittany. Yeah, super. Uh, and of course, I'll link everything in the video description so people don't have to go search for themselves. But yeah, thanks again. It was really, really nice talking to you and meeting you finally, personally. Absolutely. Yeah, let's, uh, we'll have another chat in the future, hopefully. Thank you so much for watching, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed and I will see you all soon.